0: Thanks, Josh. Well, it's been an honor to um, dwell on this passage for the past few weeks, and I truly believe that God's done a work in me through my study, through my time with him, and through the ministry he does through Emmanuel. And I hope that, that God works through, the, through this message in your hearts. I wanted to start today with a couple questions. Have you ever had something happen to you that changed the course of your life? A defining moment, a point in time when you said, I'm not that person anymore. Maybe it was something good that happened, or maybe it was something bad. Sometimes what we consider to be a reference point in our lives ends up not truly being one. In those cases, the occasion and the experience are given more power and credit than they're due, and we can get hung up on those moments. One such experience for me was adjusting to a new high school. My parents worked really hard to send me to a good school, but I had a rough time making friends and feeling like I belonged. God showed me years later how that experience was not meant to define me. If those feelings, that memory were unresolved, I would go through life still harboring notions that I just didn't make the cut. There are also positive, nurturing moments and experiences that I've had, and memories that I go back to and gain strength from, and God has taken me back to them in gratefulness. Well, I want to talk to you today about some people who had such a defining moment. For those of you who have been here at Emmanuel for the past few weeks, we've been in a sermon series in the book of Acts. All these sermons are interrelated and really build on each other. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to them, I strongly plug SoundCloud. Um, This morning, we continue that series by following the story of the first Christians as they go about their lives. Last week, we looked at what God was doing in the internal working of the church, working to love her through keeping her pure and nurturing her to be a blessing to the world. This week's passage takes us out again amongst the larger culture and allows us to see the young church in action. Today's passage is actually a sequel to Acts chapter 3 and most of chapter 4, in which, if you remember, Peter and John healed a lame man and then were arrested for it. After their release, the church prays for boldness, now, in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we see evidence that God had answered that prayer. Not only were Peter and John out being used by the Holy Spirit to bless their neighbors by healing and sharing the good news, but all of the apostles were out, and they were in the same place, Solomon's portico. God was moving through them to perform signs and wonders regularly among the people. There's an interesting side note here. Also, spoiler alert, this passage ends the same way it begins. Verse, 32, verse 42 reads, And every day, in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Luke, the author, uses this as an interesting literary bookend. It shows us that no matter what happened to God's people in the 30 verses between the beginning and end of his passage, the Holy Spirit still continued to work relentlessly through the people of God. Yes, things in the story get worse. They get really bad. But God's good purposes prevail and outlast any opposition. We can almost end the sermon at this point, but I won't. In verse 13, we can note that some people respected the believer community but they weren't willing to join them. However, many people were. In verse 14, Luke describes that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Solomon's portico was so congested day after day that these believers laid people out along the path that they hoped Peter would, would take, trusting that the Holy Spirit would heal through his shadow. This scene is meant to hit Luke's readers' minds and our minds as an echo of something similar that happened through Jesus' ministry. It was actually the gospel reading from the lectionary for this past Friday. In Mark 5, a crowd that thronged about Jesus, in a crowd that thronged about Jesus, a woman who had heard reports about him had the faith that if she touched his clothing, she would be healed of a 12 year old disease. Another reason that Luke included this scene was to authenticate the church as a work of God. By showing that the church as an entity did things similar to Christ and his pattern of ministry, the early Christians are authenticated as a continuation of Jesus' ministry. Despite all of its growth, this was also a time when the nascent Christian community suffered opposition. In Acts 4, two men... Peter and John were arrested and harassed by the officials. In Acts 5, however, the opposition, jealous of all the activity and attention, arrested all of the apostles, which were at least 12 men. But even though the apostles were arrested, God was committed to them. And even more broadly, the Lord was committed to his truth going forward and outward through his people. In this passage, an angel sets all of the apostles free and instructs them in verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's an interesting way to put it. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What did the angel mean by that? I think that this life is referring to the reality that was ushered in by the resurrection of Jesus Christ the apostles are continually instructed to return to the temple and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the next morning, after the angel sets them free, the apostles do return to Solomon's portico and preach and are all arrested again, accused of teaching, quote, in this name. The Sadducees were so repulsed that they didn't even want to say the name. But it isn't just the name that bugs the Sadducees. It is the resurrection that gets under their skin. Peter strikes right at their pulsing nerve in his response by first challenging their authority over God's authority when he says in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And also, secondly, by challenging that the resurrection of Jesus was in turn authorized by God. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. Though they had killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree, God had raised him and exalted him. But Peter's words to the Sadducees are not to spite them, but rather to offer them what Jesus' resurrection was all about. First, the resurrection was so that Jesus can give repentance and forgiveness to Israel. He stood in the place of the human race, at the cross, and won that ability. Second, also to the resurrection, God lifted Christ at his right hand as leader and savior. He was given authority and power to save. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is given to all who obey God. Sadly, rather than seeing this as an invitation to repentance, forgiveness, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Sadducees responded in rage, wanting to kill them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How did the situation escalate so far? Why did the Sadducees become so incensed? And how would the apostles find the courage to continue to preach, knowing they were risking their lives? I think it would be helpful to dive in a little deeper and consider why the apostles were willing to proclaim the resurrection and to do so with faithful commitment, day after day, even in the face of this opposition. First, we can ask what is the resurrection? We can back up and observe that most Jews believed that all of God's chosen people would, at some point, at the end of history, all be resurrected. But they didn't believe that one person in the middle of history would be resurrected. Next, based on the specific word that is used, it is clear that the resurrection did not mean these things. First, it did not mean a metaphorical or symbolic rebirth, or a spiritual limbo state, or a way of being without a body. It also did not mean that Jesus merely returned to the same identical body that he was in before his death. What the early Christians saw and experienced was Jesus Christ in his renewed body, living after a very real death, a death proved by a spear wound in his side and the blood and water spilling out just before his body was removed from the cross. The apostles felt the weight of being eyewitnesses, and they were bold because they had that defining moment of the resurrection. In chapter 4, when Peter and John were first arrested, they responded to the questioning, saying, we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Something had happened to them that changed them forever. They were motivated by it. In the book of Acts, we see it all playing out. The resurrection produced in the believers the relentless desire to be faithful witnesses of Christ. Let me say that again. The resurrection produced in the believers the relentless desire to be faithful witnesses of Christ. They truly believed that he was a son of God, and they believed that the ramifications of the resurrection, such as forgiveness, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, healing, they believed that all of this was worth sharing with the world. And that conviction guided how they lived, and in most cases, how they died as martyrs. If you think about it, the disciples had the opportunity to make the crucifixion of Jesus their reference point. They had left everything to follow him, and he seemed to be the hope of mankind. He seemed to be the Messiah prophesied to defeat the authorities and free the Jews from Roman occupation. They were finally going to get to live as the apple of God's eye. But then he got killed. But the Messiah isn't supposed to die. At least that was a popular notion and understanding. How could the son of David be caught, tried, flogged, and executed by the very people he was supposed to destroy. It seemed like the biggest mistake of their lives, the end of all hope. But then, it's just like God to give all the women and men who followed Jesus closely a new, real res- reference point the resurrection. This becomes the first part of the two part origin story of the church. This is when the new world under the reign of the living Christ begins. And Pentecost is where they're equipped to show and tell the world what this kingdom is like. From this, we see that because God rose Jesus from the dead, the church became bold and faithfully committed in their witness of Christ and of the new kingdom he had begun. In Acts 5, in the face of the high priest and everyone gathered for trial, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. They had to choose between following the one who had the power to reverse the effects of death or the ones who missed the whole point. At this point, it's also important to expand out of the apostles' experience and to explore more of why the resurrection is so significant. For all people. To find the answer, we have to leave this city setting with the temple, the court, the streets, the buildings, and travel back to a garden. Gethsemane. What do we remember about it? Jesus sweating blood, asking for a cup to pass, a betrayal through a kiss, an ear being chopped off, being healed. But if we pause and absorb for a moment the critical thing that was happening... We see that Jesus asked for the cup of suffering and death to pass for him, from him. Those things that he would soon face at the hands of the Jews and the Romans at the cross before him. God confirmed to Jesus in the garden that it was indeed his will that Jesus endure all that lay before him. And what was the purpose? We see after the cross that the purpose was the resurrection. In that garden, the mission to begin a new world in the context of the old world began. A world that had fallen from God's original intended design would now begin to be restored. And to do so, Jesus had to embrace what the humans he had come in the flesh to save had done to themselves and to all of creation in another garden, Eden. In Eden, as Susan explained last week, Satan alleges that if Adam and Eve made their own choices, instead of living within the boundaries that the creator God had set, they would not perish. Satan says, you will not surely die. However, by breaking from God's created order, disorder ensues. Instead of a world of ever-flourishing and wholeness, corruption, injury, and brokenness entered it. Instead of a vibrant, always connected to God kind of life, an end called death entered. Jesus came to end that end that death was. Instead of resisting God's heart by asking, did God really say? Or instead of choosing his human will over our Heavenly Father's will, Jesus said, yet not what I will, but what you will. Fast forward to another garden, where Jesus was mistaken for the gardener by his first eyewitness after his resurrection, Mary Magdalene, outside of his empty tomb. Here began the renewal that was planned at the point of the fall. He came to defeat death by living after enduring it. At the empty tomb, he began to undo what was done in Eden. He faced the antithesis of creation, death and willingly endured it, without fear, and came back in a renewed body. He came to begin the unraveling of death for all. Because Jesus, both Son of God and Son of Man, was resurrected, believers should live according to the new world that was birthed. The four gospel writers believed the Jewish vision of the Messiah, which was that when he appears, he will be king not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And the gospel authors all point to Jesus as the one who fulfilled that prophecy and that calling and role. He was the one who launched God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's important to note that the resurrection proved that Jesus could and would forgive our sins. Peter mentions this during the trial. Also, because God birthed a new irreversible world through the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles lived and were willing to die for the name of Jesus. They were willing to be dishonored and disgraced just to be connected to this new story. The resurrection of Jesus transformed the leaderless huddle of men and women into a group of protesters against the authorities. Christ's leadership and love was visible through the actions and words of the people he lived in through his spirit. With this understanding of the resurrection, we can turn back to our story in Acts 5. It helps us grasp how the rest of the passage ends. It helps us grasp here as the religious authorities are ready to kill the Christians. Gamaliel, who was a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, speaks up. Gamaliel argues that two other upstarts floundered and whimpered away in due time. Actually, there are many small movements in, those, in the two centuries surrounding this time that rose up and fell away. It's good to note Gamaliel's wisdom and reasoning. He says, So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. We can see that all of the court had some sense of fear of God because they didn't want to oppose the Lord, so they ended up taking Gamaliel's advice. Somehow they still managed to slip in a beating of the apostles. I don't know how that works in their reasoning, but I wouldn't have done it. (laughs) This confrontation with the religious authority was an escalation from the first time Peter and John were arrested for the healing of one man. It wasn't as bad as it could have been, but they could have all been slain right there. It is still really bad. Imagine 12 men, their, blacks, their backs split open, bleeding, and they're messed up in stained clothing, stinging in the drying blood. Then the priest, in verse twenty. Luke says, charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Yay, the apostles were free. No more intense questioning or pummeling by soldiers. But that wasn't the reason the twelve were rejoicing. Verse 41 tells us, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name. That name again the name that they began testifying about immediately. In fact, Luke affirms the last, in the last verse of this passage that it's the name of Jesus that they're willing to live by and die by. And now they had more to add to their testimony of God's deliverance. Luke writes, And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Imagine that scene with me. These wounded men, blackened eyes, bruises, whip marks, arms and slings, limping, but sharing the life-giving story, enjoy, every day, back in the same place they were arrested, and also now going house to house. Can you imagine one of those guys in your living room? Uh, Here, let me get you something for that, and to be frozen. First aid kit in one hand, ice pack in the other but your mouth agape at the testimonies spilling forth from their mouths. You'd either react to them, like the folks at the beginning of this passage, with a respectful distance, or you'd be moved to transformation and faithful witness of that life in you. As we come near to the close, I wanted to reflect on something that struck me. One disciple didn't make it to apostleship. Judas. Judas committed suicide before the story was over. Why? Well, maybe for many reasons, but one reason could be that he had made the wrong events into reference points for his life, his betrayal and Christ's death. What a shame, because the betrayal and the cross weren't the end of the story. In a sense, the cross led to the new beginning (coughs) of the new story that Christ would inaugurate. The other disciples didn't make that mistake. Yes, the cross was devastating, and they huddled in fear and confusion for a time, but God met them in their grief and led each individually and as a group to a new reference point, the resurrection. And that reference point led them to be bold and relentless for the man who had defeated death had survived the cross and was alive, forgiving sins, and bringing life. For the apostles, it may have been a little exciting that an angel set them free from prison, but what really mattered to them was that they were called by God to continue speaking the words of life. Also, to them, being beaten and under the scrutiny of authorities was nothing compared to the resurrection and the joy they had in it. I was also really moved by the fact that some of the priests... Who had held the apostles in trial actually accepted forgiveness, the forgiveness that the resurrection offered. If you look ahead to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we read, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Maybe some of those same folks who incited the rest of the priests against the believers who actually wanted them dead or ordered their punishment, maybe at some point after the apostles' release, they became open to the gospel. What does this mean for us today? We can understand our lives in light of the resurrection. In a world where the smell of death wafts by our nose through news reports and even through personal stories, we are tempted to give those things more power than they're meant to have. Yes, we are to take account of them, embrace them, grieve over them, act for change and healing. But the response we're to begin with is Christ's resurrection. We are to compare all tragedy and injustice to the risen Christ. And T. Wright puts it well. He writes, Because God is already making his new creation, all you do in Christ and by his spirit is part of the new world. Every cup of cold water, every tiny prayer, every confrontation with the bullies who oppress the poor, every song of praise or dance of joy, every work of art and music, nothing is wasted. The resurrection will reaffirm it in ways we cannot begin to imagine as part of God's new world. Resurrection isn't just about a glorious future, it's about a meaningful present. That is what it means that Jesus is raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who sleep. We can also begin today being intentional about heralding the message of this life. Our reference point for our lives is the same as the apostles, the resurrection, It has changed everything for us, as it did for them. We live by those same words of life, which we declare here every week. Every Sunday during the Eucharist, we say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. I encourage you to declare this truth to yourself daily, and especially when you face opposition. Don't define yourself by a false reference point. Some of you are. God showed me last week when I was praying with the prayer minister that I was doing that with a painful experience from my past. And he was ready to deal with it then. How about you? I challenge you to ask God to work out the resurrection in all areas of your life. Begin to work it out today, even before you leave this context. Work it out through the creed, through the confession, through the Eucharist, through with a prayer minister. My prayer for you is that you don't leave until you allow God to do what he's been meaning to do. The message of the apostles is true. The power of death has been undone. The resurrection still gives the church the power and the joy to relentlessly proclaim and live the gospel in this world, which is being renewed. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen.